This is the Equip Podcast from Cornerstone Church of Ames, a podcast designed to help you live a gospel-fueled and faithful life wherever Jesus has called you. Welcome again to the Equip Podcast. My name is Mark Vance. I work here at Cornerstone Church, and I'm joined again by a favorite guest of mine on this podcast. I don't know if I can say favorite guest if this is your second time, Alex, but the first time was great, and so I'm looking forward to this one as well. And today, we are kind of wrestling through, again, some of those questions of how we navigate the world in wisdom. Alex has some unique background as an instructor at Iowa State University in political science and philosophy that can really be of help to us here. And here's the big question for today. I want to talk about inequalities, injustice. And the reflection point of this for me is actually coming off of some thinking I've been doing inside of this coronavirus time. We know actually on a physical level, now this virus disproportionately preys on weak people, people who have a compromised immune system, right? Folks who are older with a pre-existing condition, weaker folks are hurt worse. But that's not just true right now physically, that's true economically. People who had less margin to live by are disproportionately disadvantaged. Even the further we go into this, what we find out is minority communities are affected at higher rates than majority culture communities. And it seems like this is like this recurring pattern. Harder times hit the people who were struggling already worse than it hits the rest. There's an unequal inequality sort of way that these times hit people. And so where does that come from? What can we do about it? Why should we care about it or even talk about it as Christians? How does this intersect into the Christian faith? Those are the things we want to wrestle with. And so, Alex, I want to start this off by just asking you this question. Why should I care about inequality as a Christian? Why should that even matter to me? Well, as Christians, you know, we're called to love all people. And I think loving people means that we seek their flourishing. Uh, And inequalities create barriers that make it difficult for people to flourish. So if I don't have access to educational opportunities, it's difficult for me to develop the mind that God has given me. If I'm in poor health, it makes it hard to work. It makes it hard to enjoy God's creation. You know, if I'm in in a situation of poverty, I'm more... Uh, vulnerable to exploitation, right? So there's just a variety of different ways that inequalities can create barriers that make it difficult for people uh, who are created in God's image to flourish. So do you mean that, I want to clarify this because I think sometimes the inequality question gets phrased this way, like people are disadvantaged are people who have less money, you know, or less social status. And Mm -hmm. I tend to think of those as byproducts of inequality is more than like the inequality itself. So certainly on a mathematical level, a person who has more wealth versus less wealth, that is unequal, right? But inequality, particularly the sort that Christians care about, seems to be connected to a injustice, a wrong, either a personal sin or a societal suffering that makes that imbalance different. And so... Do you think of like, Alex, when you look out at the world and you're looking at inequalities, some people I think could look at this and say, well, people have to make personal choices, right? So inequalities, they're the product of bad choices. 
you had bad choices. It leads to bad consequences, right? So, hey, I know inequalities are there, but if you just work hard as an individual, turn your life around, you know, so how do we answer that? Like that idea that inequality that we care about has some tie-in, not just to personal choice and personal responsibility, but to factors of injustice that we don't really choose as individuals. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think, you know, the the common view you were describing has some roots in the Bible. You know, so if you go through Proverbs, there's a lot about, you know, commending people to be wise in this way and, you know, be wise in that way. And, you know, talking about how you're going to have more wealth, for example, if you do this as opposed to, to do that. And really, I mean, the whole premise of this podcast series is that we have decisions to make and making wise decisions is going to uh, be a better thing than making foolish decisions, right? So uh, it would be overly simplistic to, like, to deny that people's choices have impacts and sometimes negative impacts on how their lives and their children's lives and grandchildren's lives go. Um, but even in Proverbs, that's only part of the story. I mean, Proverbs 13.23 says, uh, the uncultivated field of the poor yields abundant food, but without justice, it is swept away. In other words, like if you're living in a situation where your hard work can just be, uh, you know, the fruits of it can be taken away by other people in injustice, um, you're not going to experience uh, the fruit of your labor not because of your fault, but because of the injustices that exist mm. um, around you. I also think like in the wisdom literature, if you think of the book of Ecclesiastes, I think it kind of balances out Proverbs a little bit because Ecclesiastes is, is less confident uh, that the good guy always wins and the bad guy always loses. You know, there's, there's more of a, um, uh, a sense that life is precarious and, and, it doesn't follow these nice, neat patterns that we wish uh, mm. that we wish it followed. Yeah, you think of those patterns like some people talk about, like the virtuous cycle. You know, Proverbs reinforces a virtuous cycle. Good behavior leads to good results, which leads to flourishing, which leads to more incentive for good behavior. And as you do that, you kind of follow the virtuous cycle up. But I think of Ecclesiastes actually. If Proverbs emphasizes often the virtuous cycle. I've always thought of Ecclesiastes as bringing our attention to the vicious cycle on the other side, where it's almost like Proverbs says, well, if you make good decisions, it turns out good. It's almost like Ecclesiastes is a skeptic over here going, well, yeah, but let me show you this one, where they tried and it actually went the other way. And I think we need the balance of those two wisdom literatures to navigate the real world with pain, suffering, and the sin curse. You know, sometimes there is a vicious cycle people get into where it seems like they're standing on a slippery slope downward than many other people. And so flesh out some, some examples socially, Alex. Um, when you look out to American society where you see that like vicious versus virtuous sort of cycle of inequality happening. Yeah. So, um, one of the statistics I came across a number of years ago, and th these statistics are a few years old, but the, the basic story hasn't changed, uh, is that in the United States, uh, the average white family has a median net worth uh, of $134,000. Uh, the average uh, black family in the United States has 
a median net worth of about $11,000. So that's more than a factor of 10 of difference, right? And so you start asking yourself, well, what could explain a discrepancy in wealth that big? Um, and you know, I think from my perspective, there's no way you can account for that much difference just based on wise choices some people are making in their lifetime and foolish choices other people are making in their lifetime. Mm -hmm. There is like multi-generational stuff going on here. There are histories of uh, injustice in our country. You know, so part of the story here is after World War II, lots of people are buying homes uh, and those homes are appreciating. So they're having like inheritance to leave to their kids and their grandkids and compound interest, right? And wealth is... is uh, you know, being created. Uh, and African-Americans were basically shut out of that housing market through redlining and other kinds of discriminatory practices. And so like families are still feeling the effects of injustices, you know, from the middle of the 20th century today. Um, interestingly, like another version of that same statistic says, well, what if we only look and compare white families where somebody's got a graduate degree, like a master's degree, a PhD, law degree, something like that, versus uh, black families where somebody's got a graduate degree. Uh, the numbers are higher, right, in both cases, um, but it's, you know, average net worth now of $300,000 for the white family and $85,000 uh, for the black family, right? So it's still you know, more than a factor of three in difference. And these are people who made individual choices wise enough to get themselves through graduate school, right? So you're kind of controlling for people who've made a lot of good choices, right? Um, but you still see these, these differences. So what that tells me is there's some structural things going on in our country today and also in our history uh, that you need to look at yeah. uh, injustices to explain that kind of a discrepancy, not just individual level decision-making. So I want to press on this with the objection that I have most of the time that runs through my head with this sort of thinking, which is how does not that not just create victimhood perpetually for people? You know, like Alex, if I have raise a scenario and I say to my son, son, if you make good decisions, it's going to go better for you. You know, like you're, you're on the up and up. That is a different incentive motivator than if I say, son, if you make good decisions, look, it's not going to turn out any better because you're always destined to be a loser because this happened to you. Like, in other words, the, the scenario, what I don't, what I fear at times when we go through the discussion of inequality is that we perpetuate a sense that no matter what choices an individual makes, because of things that have happened in the past that they had no control over, they're kind of almost predestined to a lower rung. So how do we combat that? How do we still motivate people to say, no, keep moving forward, keep pursuing wisdom, keep, how do we avoid perpetual victimhood of people made in God's image who could move forward? Yeah, I, I think there's, there's several things to say. One is I think there's an honest way of teaching Proverbs and an unhelpful way of teaching Proverbs. I think the honest way of teaching Proverbs is to say, look, all else being equal, um, doing these things is gonna tend to lead to a better life, so you should do them. But I think even when you're teaching Proverbs, you should be telling people these things do not come with a guarantee, right? So if, if you tell your children they are guaranteed certain outcomes if they just do what Proverbs says, 
and then they find themselves the victims of injustice or, or you know, misfortune or whatever. Now all of a sudden they feel like they're doubting the Bible because they were told this was one of God's promises, um, and it's not one of God's promises, right? So I, th- I think there's a way to say, look, sure your choices matter, but don't assume that they guarantee you a person a certain outcome. And it also means, conversely, you can't assume that somebody else who had a bad outcome must have gotten there just because of their bad choices, right? It, yeah. it can help you not have that kind of, um, you know, overly, uh, overly simplistic view of the world. And then the second thing I'd say is if someone actually is a victim of injustice, speaking truth means acknowledging that they are a victim of injustice. That doesn't mean it has to become the foundation of their personal identity, right? So when people talk about victimhood, it's true that if, like as a Christian, who I am in Jesus Christ and my identity as a child of God should be more fundamental to my identity than the fact that I have experienced different injustices. I mean, I think we can affirm that. But there are also many Christians who really have experienced injustices, and I don't think we help them if we tell them they can't speak truth about injustices that they've experienced. Yeah, I've I've counseled people at times that the a healthy wheel, way to heal the past isn't a denial of the past; it's an acknowledgement. You know, but and I'm not talking about just the personal sins, but the societal generational sins. It does no good to say to a person who's an African-American that, you know what, the past is the past and it doesn't have any impact on the present. That, that's a denial of the situation of reality in our country. But an acknowledgement of the past doesn't have to provide you with an all-encompassing label or predictor of your future, you know? So I, if you say, I am my past— well, as a Christian, I think you've gone a little too far. What I want to say is I, I am what God says that I am now in Christ, which can actually give me a different path to the future. But saying I am who I am in Christ doesn't rewrite. For Paul, he doesn't retell his story and say, I was never a Pharisee at all. I never persecuted Christians. No, he did have that past. And to acknowledge that is actually the stepping stone to even move forward. So I, I think the great errors are when people try to live with a denial of what's really true. Like, no, that, that's not real. I'm, I'm an overcomer. I'm past all that. That's like just a denial, a squelching of the injustice. On the other side, the, the opposing error of going too far is to say, all I am is my past. All I am is my suffering where I over-identify. So, okay, let's turn the corner and I want to look at the moment right now because what provoked the thinking for me to even come and ask you some of these questions, Alex, was looking at the current moment in our country where, honestly, what provoked it was I read an article about how African Americans are disproportionately impacted by both sickness and the economic condition created from the coronavirus. And it was not something I was thinking about at all. It, it, I didn't, it was a new, I thought, oh, man. This crisis hurts some people way more than it hurts other people. And so what are some of the concerns that you're seeing as you look out at this moment right now? Yeah, I mean, I think to tie into something you said at the very beginning, what we're seeing now is a pattern that happens frequently in history, right? So when, when there are 
tragedies and disasters and famines and things like that happen, the effects of those are not experienced equally. In fact, there was uh, a Nobel Prize winning economist who did this study on famines and uh, showed that basically when famines happen, it's, it's not the case that there isn't actually enough food to feed everybody. It's the food isn't distributed to the people who need it. Because what happens in a famine is the price of food skyrockets. Wealthy people can afford to pay it and they hoard it, right? And then uh, other people who can't afford to pay those prices starve to death, right? So that's, I mean, that's happened many times in history where the pre-existing inequalities influence who's harmed most when things get tough, right? So, so like in our day, um, you know, the people who are already in poor health uh, are more vulnerable uh, to die from the virus. But people who are living in poverty were already more likely to be in poor health, right? Because yeah. there's, there's right. Uh, strong correlations there. Um, you know, if depending on which neighborhood you live in, and both race and social economic class affect this, depending on what neighborhood you live in, that impacts the quality of the schools that are there. It impacts the quality of the hospitals and medical facilities that are there, like what you what you tend to have uh, access to. Access to information, right, is is important, right? Not everybody has equal access to information. Not everybody has uh, you know, high-speed internet uh, in their homes. Not everybody has uh, a computer in their home, right? And so in, in situations where now suddenly we're, you know, quarantined and, uh, you know, stay-at-home orders and all the rest, you experience all that very differently if you've got a whole bunch of people packed into a tiny apartment in Manhattan uh, compared to somebody, you know, living in a spacious single family dwelling in Iowa with a nice yard and, and high speed internet. I mean, it's the, the hardship of being quarantined is different. Mm. The risks are different. Uh, the, you know, the chances of losing your job are different, right? You know, I, I have a, a knowledge economy job where, uh, I can do a lot of my job from home, uh, with a laptop. Um, yep. Yep. You know, people who are in lower wage jobs, that's often not true. Like if you work at a hotel cleaning rooms and nobody is staying in hotels, you just don't have a job now, right? If you, if you work as a server at a restaurant uh, and restaurants are closed, you just don't, uh, don't have income now. Hmm. Alex, I thought about this too with Anastasia, your wife. I know she works with the public library. She's worked a ton with kids and literacy and one of the things that really drove home to me about this is, you know, my youngest, Reed, we work a lot with him in reading. And one of the bummers has been he has these great reading teachers at Kate Mitchell. And I love to read with my kids. I'm not a great reading teacher. I don't know how to get him to do the TH stuff right. And so Crystal and I are, there's a concern we have kind of rising up in us that for Reed, summer is a really important time right? Because he could go backwards. So even just take that as a case study, Alex, and think through that a little bit, because I know you and Anastasia care about that a lot. Yeah. What you're yeah. seeing happen with inequalities, even in just reading gaps. Yeah. So, so public institutions like libraries and public schools exist to decrease the opportunity gaps that would otherwise exist. They never close them. The opportunity gaps are still there, Right. But some people can just afford to keep buying books for their kids uh, while they're stuck at home. Other people can't afford that, right? So if they can't get to the library to access 
uh, free books that they can check out, they're just not going to have opportunities to read. Um, uh, the more educated your parents are, uh, odds are the more they've been socialized to really value education, the more capacity they have to be impromptu teachers. So even if it's not as good as what they would have had at school, they're more likely to get something. The less education parents have had, the more struggles they may have if they now have to suddenly find themselves in the role of, of teacher. And, you know, there's, there's statistics showing that if you look at the achievement gaps based on things like race and, and poverty and so forth, and you take a snapshot of kids, you know, in April or May, right before school gets out, and then you retest those same kids again in August when everybody goes back to school, the gap widens every summer, right? So, so the longer kids are not in school, the gap gets bigger again. Um, and so now you have a six-month gap instead of a three-month gap. Um, it's, it's, it's children who are already at risk who are going to be the ones most uh, harmed by that. They, they've got less internet access. They've got less access to books. Um, their parents may have less uh, flexibility in schedules to be able to take on teaching responsibilities. And so, yeah, it's a real, it's a real issue. So the final question I have is, what can I do? As a Christian, why should I care and what can I do? Um, we see the inequalities that are there. This is where we have a God of justice, and so our heart moves out to do something. What do you think Christians can do right now with some of these growing inequalities that will just, those gaps will widen right now? What can we do? Uh, I think maybe three things. First, I think we can just have an attitude of compassion rather than judgment, right? Instead of just assuming, well, you're just, you're just reaping what you sowed because you made bad choices. Um, I think we, get, we can have compassion. Um, second, I think we can try to support policies, whether it's in the schools, local government, and so forth. We can try to support policies that help the vulnerable, even if those policies inconvenience us right? Healthy people may have to make uh, sacrifices of their liberties on behalf of those whose health is more fragile. Uh, you know, those who are wealthy may have to um, live with choices that governments are making that are different than the choices they would just make for themselves, but they're choices that are, are done to help, say, vulnerable children. Um, and we can try to support those even when they're inconvenient to us. And third, I would also say, if, if you're in a position of relative prosperity, uh, you can choose to give generously rather than hoarding, right? To, to, to look at what God has made you responsible for yeah. uh, and look for opportunities uh, to be a blessing to people who uh, are in greater need. Mm. Alex, there's so much there. There's so much I need to chew on. Um, I, I even have in my head, one of the things I've thought about is maybe right now, one of the great things we can do is when we go back to school for an army of Christians to go and read with kids, you know, just really simple acts of love. I've been thinking a lot about what it means to love your neighbor right now. And what I'm trying to tell myself and others to do right now is go love the three people you think of when you see the word neighbor. Like, don't just love neighbor in general. Don't just care about equality in the this sort of abstract, like esoteric, academic way care about a kid who won't be able to read at grade level and go read with him. And so as a Christian, you, you might not be able to change the whole of society, but I don't think that's ever your call as an individual. 
Uh, what changes the whole of society are a thousand people filled with the Spirit of God who do the right thing that's in front of them, who love one of those three people that are around them and create something better in the space that they can create. So maybe that's a final word for all of us, is right now as Christians, um, look for a kid that you could read with. Look for somebody who's underprivileged in your community. Look at the food bank that's there. Look at the things that are there and be willing to sacrifice something of yours to help somebody else uh, move forward in any way you can. Alex, thanks for the wisdom. Thanks for your perspective. And thanks for the conversation today. 